This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Most data is best understood through the lens of time. When you think about understanding a data set, you think understanding a problem, it's best understood through the lens of time. So it's not just influx or benefit, it's the whole category. How much time-stamped and series data should be collected? Is it even necessary? What does it unlock? Our guest today is Evan Kaplan. He's the CEO of Influx Data, which is a time service application that helps customers with analytics and collecting data for their products. With more than two decades of experience as an executive, Evan shares his thoughts on data collection, analytics, and making products accessible to customers. Tune in to hear how his ideas on how to improve data collection to perfect, critical, and real-time responses that translate from the digital world to the physical world. Evan Kaplan, welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Listen, we are pumped to have you. You are an interesting character. We've read a little bit about you, and I want our audience <laughs> to get to know you a little bit more. Just for the record, everyone, Paul Dix, the CTO of Influx Data, has been on the show before. Uh, if you can go check out that episode if you're curious about how it works. But today, we want to know about the journey. Evan, you ready to tell us more about how you came about this opportunity? Sure. How far back do you want me to go? We did a little homework on you, and it sounds like you were in uh, the venture capital world for a little bit, and you were evaluating deals and understand, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, and you're trying to figure out which companies were going to make it. So you were evaluating a lot of different things. What made you see the opportunity, or what did you see for you to say, hey, Influx Data is the way I want to go? And also, if you could, real quick, tell our audience what is Influx Data in case they haven't heard Paul's uh, episode. So let's start there. What, tell, tell us a little about Influx Data. What does it do? So Influx Data is an open source time series platform. So it allows people to collect high measurements based on time, process them, query them at near real time. And we offer it as an enterprise product. We offer it as a cloud native product both ways for folks. But it's based on a large open source community. The primary product is InfluxDB. You mentioned time several times. For anyone who's not listened to, again, the previous episode, why is time series so important? It's a variety of things, but there are probably two big trends that sort of drive this, this dynamic is if you look at sort of generally systems that people are building nowadays, whether they're software systems or IoT kinds of systems, everybody's looking for really two things. They're looking for intelligence, increasing intelligence, driven by the AI dynamic and the, you know, and that. And they're looking for more real time. Every journey towards a more intelligent, self-healing, autonomous systems begins with instrumentation. What do I know about the system at some point? I watch the system operate. I look for anomalies and I correct for those anomalies. And then I re-instrument. And then I look for anomalies. I correct for those anomalies. If you do that, you know, 5 billion times, you've got a self-driving car. If you're doing it 45 times, you've got a better performing factory chain. If you're doing it. And so the idea being is that as our systems get more sophisticated, the instrumentation becomes more common. And so in the old days, you would have just thrown this stuff in a generalized database. But as the amount of data, hundreds of millions, billions of points a second coming in, you really want to treat them as their own data type, much like you would with search or documents or graph data. You really want to treat them specifically in order to get the best results. So give us an idea of that moment because. 
you know, we did a little homework on you and certainly we'll have you retell the story, but it sounds like you were at Trinity Ventures when you met uh, the other two gentlemen that were part of the, that are part of the leadership team at Influx, Paul and Todd, and you were working as an EIR overseeing a lot of deals. I guess, what was it that drew you in and be like, huh, I want to be part of this? Yeah, that's, that's great. To have some context about my background is, you know, in 96, I'd started a company out of my house. We're kind of a unicorn of the day. We grew it quite large. Then the market crashed just as we were about to go public. So we had to rebuild it again. And then I took some time off and with my family and moved to Jackson Hole for a year and then ran a public company here in the Bay Area for about five and a half years. And then sat at Trinity looking at deals or opportunities with them and sort of coaching some of their CEOs as an exec in residence. And so that's the context by which I show up, which is a strong entrepreneurial background as well as public company CEO kind of background. So kind of a weird mix. And I had a lot of clarity coming back to your original question. I had a lot of clarity that I wanted to get back to earlier stage companies. Running a small pap- cap public company was painful, hard, <laughs> and, and, and got me far away from the stuff that was interesting. And so when I was at Trinity, I probably looked at 100 different Series A, B pitches, things like that. And one of the things that's very, very common in that Series A, B dynamic is you've built your first product, maybe prototype, you've gotten your first 12 or 15 customers. Some are beta, some are actually paying customers. And so now each customer is using this technology or product in a slightly different way. And so as you think about raising money and growing the company, you have to figure out where is the sweet spot. And so if you imagine each of these use cases is sort of 15 degrees apart, you now have an 180 degree arc. And so you have to be able to figure out like, where am I, you know, I got 30 degrees I can work with. Where am I going to put the money when I raise it? Where am I going to scale? Where am I going to invest? What part of that market's going to be most successful? And if you get it wrong, it's super painful. You either get recapped or you go out of business. And so you don't get many shots at the, and so you see that risk between A and B pretty common as companies winnow out. And so I was looking at stuff. The thing that I loved about Influx was, so I had a lot of conviction about open source coming in mm-hmm. because when I ran the public company, we had a number of open source projects, some really successful, some not so. And so I had a lot of conviction about open source being the next generation of infrastructure. But the thing that you loved about Influx, by the time I joined, they had already had 3,000 active sites running it every day you could see. Mm. And for a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, people would tell you what they were doing. And so in terms of understanding a product market fit or where you'd put wood behind the arrow, you had a very clear picture. And that is like gold. And it's one of the benefits of the open source business model. So that was one. Two is I met Paul and Todd at the time and, and we were all CrossFitters. And so if you've ever met a CrossFitter, They'll tell you within like 12 seconds that they CrossFit. I CrossFit. Do you? Yeah, so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so I tell you, like, you know, and so we're able to bond around that. We're able to bond around this entrepreneurial journey, which is an emotional, you know, an emotional roller coaster that's it's really hard to imagine unless you're actually in it, particularly when you're taking other people's money. So we're able to bond around that. You know, with Paul particularly, you know, it takes a lot for a CEO to come in with a founder. It really takes a lot. And I would say most cases it fails. It's a pretty narrow path. It takes a fair amount of emotional intelligence on both parties to be able to navigate that road. And with Paul, I felt like I had a partner I could do that with. 
And that's turned out to be really true, which means um, we've built a kind of foundational relationship. And that was a big part. And then lastly, I just thought this time series thing, probably in the Paul podcast, you understood why he built it. But in my view was I thought IoT was going to be a very big phenomenon and sensors speak time series. And I was like, wow, okay, this is going to be a unique opportunity if we can maintain this leadership and grow this open source. And so, and then I asked my wife permission whether I could join a pre-revenue company, which for all the five reasons that I was going to go, if the sixth reason didn't work, I wasn't going to be able to join. I asked my wife for permission if we could join a pre-revenue company because of all the dynamics around that. And she said, sure. There you go. So I joined. Well, listen, you hinted at some things that I want to definitely talk a little bit more about. In an open source project, you were already naturally had in interest in open source based fundamental businesses. There was over 3000 customers at the time using it or 3000 sites using it. Sites. That's pretty, yeah, that's pretty exciting too. But the big thing I want I'm curious about is Paul had the vision for time series and why it would be important. Did you, at the time he pitched this to you, did you really understand what he saw in like the future of it? Or were you, cause like, were you already sensing like, Hey, how is this going to get solved? Or did after talking with him, did you see like, wow, this is a real big opportunity? I think it was after, just to be honest with you. My background was in security and networking. It wasn't in data. Every great company is built on an entrepreneur's unique point of view. And Paul's point of view, as you, as you may remember, was is that every time somebody would try to build a system, a trading system or an instrumentation system or you know an IoT system, they were, they were yak shaving, as you would say, which means before you could actually do the thing, you had to do a hundred other things. And so his point of view was like, you could make this way easier for developers and build a platform that's right from the get-go ready for time series data. For this to work, the CEO just can't be a figurehead. It has to be, you know, I have to be able to contribute something to the mix, to the vision, to all that sort of stuff. And so Paul is definitely the vision driver, which is a unique situation for me because being an entrepreneur, I was used to that. But I also had the unique point of view that this was a perfect fit for IoT. Paul had come from the financial world. I had come from security and networking, that this would be super relevant in this IoT world, which is largely a bespoke phenomenon. So open source would lend itself to that world. And so that's what I was excited about. Let's talk about how time series data is so important to IoT devices. Most IoT devices have this kind of promise or a hope that they want to be able to, in real time or as in little time as possible, be able to alert. Most IoT devices are some type of alert notification, right? So the first step is something is wrong or something is amiss. Once something is amiss, correction measures can be implemented. That's generally what IoT tools are used for, from something as simple as, hey, this is my automated fish tank filter, right? It's going to change the filtration levels based upon what it senses to something more critical, like a medical device, like how Apple Watch is working now, where it's like, hey, I don't sense a heartbeat. I'm going to instantly send a signal that says, hey, call for help. This is this person's location. Uh, We see use cases from every day to like, you know, life critical now. When you think of it that way, it sounds like it makes sense to me. But for a lot of people, they don't understand. It's like, well, what was the problem before? And so like this idea that constantly monitoring data by the millisecond is actually, and you have to make it, like you said, a unique record per millisecond to actually understand, is something amiss? Did you foresee all those use cases when you first got involved? Or did those use cases really start becoming more evident? And you were like, hey, we got to get better, faster, more accurate to even deliver these solutions that people are trying to figure out. I think I did see them, actually. You know, I mean, listen, the trend has been um, inexorable, which is, 
you know, we're moving to increasingly autonomous systems in every part of our life, whether it's our home, whether it's our medical care, whether it's factory floors, our cars, right? Things are getting smarter, right? Yeah. The foundation of smarter, where smarter hits the physical world, is sensors, right? Yeah. So whether you're measuring pressure, temperature, humidity, volume, light, heartbeat, what have you, and all of those are time sample measurement. And the higher resolution, the higher the resolution, often the more relevant it is. And so the first level of that stuff, I think you're hinting at this, is an indication system. Yeah. Like, okay, like it's too hot in your house, the alarm's going off, your smoke alarm. Your heart rate is above 160, maybe you should pull back a little bit or something, right? There's some indication, right, in which you're the you're the but the real promise, and we see it, and we're seeing it all over the place, the real promise is autonomy, right? So the idea is that I want my house to be at an average of 69 degrees during the day and 72 degrees at night, just making some numbers up. Can the system correct? Can the system take the hysteresis out of it and correct for those sorts of things, right? All of that is based on time-based measurements and regular, regular sampling. Can the car, the self-driving car, can it know what the speed zone is based on how you're performing and what the signage is? And all of these things are based on time-based measurements. How long is it going to take for me to hit that person at this rate, right? When do I have to break? And so the more sophisticated systems have a control loop where the control loop is built in. That it's not just indicating to a human, to a system, to an output, but actually builds a control loop. And so that's where the time series stuff becomes very valuable in indication, but it's super valuable in control is where I can take that data. And the first level of that is I can just see it in real time and act on it in real time. The next level of that is I can downsample that data and I can build a model that can predict what's going to happen in real time. So I'm not just responding to real time. I'm predicting already what's going to happen based on some inputs. And so you get this increasing level of sophistication and it's every single system we're going to deal with. And the driver behind all that is the availability of sensors. If you think about it simply as we're sensorifying the physical world. Yeah. Did not exist before. The Apple Watch, as you just mentioned, Bluetooth earphones. I'm like, I'm wearing sensors all the time. Yeah. I'm wearing a whoop band. Just <laughs> <laughs> Of course you are. <laughs> of course I am. Of course I am. One of the things I think about is back in the day when I was developing or working at software company, one of the things we did was we did real time. We did, at the time we called it real time. It was every minute, um, real time alert notification systems of commentary for customer service, right? If people started complaining a lot about, let's say wait times or something like that, then the business would then understand via social media density, like, hey, something's wrong, something's amiss. And that was every minute. But like modern applications, like especially like medical applications, how, how tight of time differences are we talking about? Like it's, it's no longer a minute could be too long. I mean, it sounds insane to say, but like in a medical situation, you know, a minute might be too long. How quickly are you taking snapshots and like recording data points now? So we have customers doing nanosecond resolution data, nanosecond, which means you can't keep that data long round very long, right? Yeah. So when you think about quantum computing and things like that, so there's real needs for very, 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 there's very specific needs for that. But most of the data should be millisecond resolution to second resolution. You know, not all systems need that. Yeah. But the thing is, all systems will eventually trend towards that. If there's no downside to collecting the data and having the higher resolution, at least for some, you need to store the high resolution forever. 
But having it to look at that window is actually pretty useful in a lot of cases. Like you said, automations require the recognition of an anomaly. Something has to be wrong. Like there's nothing to change. If everything's going fine, there's nothing to change. If something's wrong, right. okay, something has to change. How fast can you recognize that change? How complicated the system? Which leads into, as the world has moved on, the other thing that I think about is like network speeds, data storage speeds, compute speeds. These have all come to support this as well. Because like probably if you had this idea or you ran, if you met Paul, like, I don't know two decades earlier, and this was the idea, there probably wouldn't be enough systems to support it because there's a lot of other, the ecosystem has to be evolved to handle this as well, as well. Because when I think of like nanosecond recordings, I mean, this is no longer like API calls. People think like the old ways API calls. This is like a live pipe. This data is like constantly being piped in. I think it's right. But by the way, people were doing, I mean, you don't send a man to the moon without having a time series platform underneath. So people were doing this years ago. If you would have done this, you would have done it on Formix or Oracle. And before that, you might have done it on a mainframe, right? What's just happened is as these systems have become more and more sophisticated and more omnipresent, you just want, you want to treat it specially. People did search before there were search databases. That's true. People did certainly did document search before there was MongoDB. It's like you're just getting into these increasingly specialized. And I think what the cloud environment has allowed you to very quickly assemble these different components together. Which is probably, and I'm, I mean, and I'd love to hear this, is unlocking that next wave of innovation. Because when you're thinking about like the, the old way, we just talked about it, like you would need a mainframe. Well, that already puts, you have to be an enterprise business to even, come, to even think about experimenting. Now you're talking about, hey, if you're a young engineer and you have an idea, you can use Influx and quickly set up your time database very quickly to put to to test your theory or test your hypothesis uh, very quickly. What kind of projects do you start seeing being built on your platform? Because this is where things probably get really exciting. Because from every person we've talked to that's built a coding platform, they're always surprised by what people are doing with it, like things that they would not have guessed. Oh, this just this is such phenomenal stuff. In terms of commercial customers, like Lucid Motors has become a pretty significant customer and, you know, getting all the telemetry from the car so they can look at a car's action in real time and that sort of stuff. Tesla with the power walls and trading energy and view on that, industrial automation and like PTC and Schneider. The cool stuff I love, which really aren't customers because they're using the open source so aggressively, like space telescopes, orbital launches. We have a number of orbital satellite customers. It's a very horizontal capability. Like you got a problem. You can't think of a business you'd start now that touched the physical world in any way where you wouldn't say, oh, I could find a useful time series. In fact, you know, Albert, you're pretty technical. Like you should just go on the cloud. There's a free tier. You could build something for your house that you would find really cool. Everything, <laughs> you know, everything from measuring your heart rate during your MRF workout and tracking that over a four-year period or to uploading your Apple Watch data. You know, there's just so many, there's so many fun ways to play with it. One of the things that is great about the platform that Paul originally designed and built is super accessible. Yeah. If you're any kind of developer, you can quickly put something together. All that stuff is really fun. There's a guy who built pre, you know, a really good monitor for diabetes. It's better than some of the commercial ones for his home wow. stuff, for his kid. Yeah. You love, I love these stories. Yeah. Makes me feel like I'm doing really good work. <laughs> you already hinted at it. The, the demand for more autonomous products, sensor-fied products, it's just going to keep going up, especially as now they're getting good. It wasn't that long ago, like 10 years ago, walking the floor at CES and seeing like, oh, we're going to have smart fridges. Like, is that going to help me? It doesn't seem like 
<laughs> didn't feel like it was going to help me. That's been blown by now. By the way, I do have my first smart fridge, and I love it. <laughs> I love it. It tells me when to replace the filter. It tells me, like, it, it talks to me. <laughs> I got a dumb fridge still, not going to lie. My fridge is still a dumb fridge. <laughs> I'm always impressed when, these, when the consumer companies come out with something that's really easy for me to, you know, to engage with from my phone. What I was getting at was like, you know, there's more and more appetite than ever and more companies, consumer CPGs. Every company is going to try to figure out a way to build a, a, a smart layer to their product, I think. That, that's, that seems to be happening. Do you know why? Yeah, why? The primary reason why is you, you get new business models. You get a service model. All of a sudden, back to the dumb thing, the smart refrigerator is, you know, before, you know, the filter would go, I'd go on Amazon and I'd go find a filter that might match your TV and ship it to me. And now they say, they alert me and say, would you like to order online within the same app? All of a sudden, they've got a service model, right? Not only do they sell me the refrigerator, they now got the warranty model. Same thing, I buy a BMW. I don't have a BMW, but if I buy a BMW, the car is instrumented. And so when the tire wear is not where you want it to be, like all of a sudden you're enabling these business models that are fundamentally different for people who just used to manufacture stuff and ship it out. Yeah. That's why it's just a completely different economic offer. I'm one of those people that's still like, I think I'm old school because mainly because I'm cheap. Is like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's a good thing. As long as my, my product doesn't brick, like uh, I saw, I saw this thing with like smart fridges where if you didn't use the exact filter, like it wouldn't work. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I'm still cheap like you. So it told me to order on that, but I went to Amazon and found it. <laughs> but it told me, at least told me. <laughs> but like when you see this type of demand, when you see this type of consumer demand and, and uh, manufacturing demand, especially across industries that maybe weren't technical before, like we said, but like they're now getting into smart layers. Do you also see that with like, uh, I guess the... The next wave of talent. Do you see like more kids in college downloading an influx instance and saying like, hey, I want to try to test this because more people are thinking that way now. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're you're coming into school or you're an engineer, you're already thinking that way. For sure. So today that community that was maybe three thousand back then is like six hundred and forty thousand today of active mm. instances that run it daily. And a fair number of them are college students playing with it, they're home hobbyists. I can't tell you the number of times somebody built something at home and then took it into work hmm. and built something at work just because they got used to it. Because it's a relatively easy product to build stuff around and you get really critical information very quickly. That's, you know, and you see that and you go, okay, I should be instrumenting some of this other work stuff. When you see that happening, what do you envision for your, like, for your company? Like when you think of where's Influx going to be in the next four to five years? How much faster can it be? Or how many more records? You're already collecting it down to the nanosecond. Where do you think your innovations will come from? In which categories will you take bets down? So we've already taken bets. Paul may have talked about some of this. We have a new storage engine coming online that gives us native SQL support and is dramatically more scalable and cheaper to run. And so that'll be in the open source. It's an MIT open source project. We, are, we continue to want to make the onboarding journey really easy, even for non-developers. And so making that process really easy. So our view is the market's so large. How do we meet developers where they are? If they want to work in Ruby or Python or they whatever, can they build whatever they want on our platform in those, right? We try to take a playbook out of, I think, Atlas. Mongo's Atlas did a really good job with this. Very few people have. Is really trying to meet developers where they are and not trying to get them prescribed to where we are and then have them be able to build something. The whole notion of, and you know this because you've been a developer, like 
you know, the feeling of getting something right, the feeling of empower, the feeling like you've got this tool that works in such a variety of different situations that allows you to take it from job to job. We want to build sort of a loyalty like, wow, I feel powerful when I use this capability, this tool. There are so many problems I can address and solve. And not just for influx, but the whole category around time series. Most data is best understood through the lens of time when you think about it. When you think about understanding a data set, or you think understanding a problem, it's best understood through the lens of time. So it's not just influx who benefit, it's the whole category. The way you talked about expanding it actually brings us almost full circle. For our audience who's listening, before the conversation got started with Evan, we, he and I talked a little bit about, about myself beforehand and how what I was doing, I was teaching people how to use software. And Evan, the thing that you said, meet, meeting developers where they are or meeting the next generation of developers where they are, I'll share this tip. You, of course, don't. You, you're the boss. You can do whatever you want. But uh, <laughs> one of my buddies is a servicer for UiPath. And they said that one of the things that they did was they started doing build your own robot seminars. And so many people would come because they'd be fascinated. They're like, how do I do this? And so they would come and be like, build your own robot using UiPath. The company was called Jolt. It's a servicer. I can tell you that they service so much business because of that that they got acquired by another bigger servicer recently. So, but that build your own robot, like kind of what you just said, like developers, sometimes they need, in, in this case, it was developers and non-developers. They just need that opportunity to be like, well, what is this that you're doing? So yeah, they did like a world tour, build your own robot. That's a really good idea because a lot of the home automation, the open source home automation used Influx already. So we could have fun with that in terms of getting people. I hadn't really thought of it. We did a while ago, build your own net IoT with Raspberry Pi. Yeah. But there's an opportunity to expand that idea. I agree. Like you said, there's there's endless appetite. There's more because more companies, like you said, more companies, everyone wants to know how to get better at this. So this is going to be an exciting future. And with a database, you want to be able to scale from laptops or sensors all the way to heavy, heavy duty work in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And so we've been able to do that rather nicely. And I give Paul a lot of credit for that. <laughs> well, Evan... It was awesome having you on the show today at IT Visionaries. I want to say thank you for sharing some of the things that you guys are doing and what you're looking forward to at Influx. But before you go, it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Evan, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. Ready. Okay. You mentioned, because you are a CrossFitter, that you are a CrossFitter. You dropped Murph. What is your favorite CrossFit workout? The one I hate and love the most is probably Murph. So just, uh, you know, um, I hate it and love it. For those who don't know what Murph is, go ahead and tell them what Murph entails. You run a mile with a 20-pound weight vest. Then you do 100, um, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 yep. squats, air squats. And then you run another mile. The formal way to do it is you do that 100, 200, 300 in succession, but most people break it up to do like five push-ups, 10 pull-ups, you know, or 10, five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, 15 air squats. Um, so it's a brutal workout. And Paul's, Paul's actually much better at it than me now. So he's, cause he's lighter. He's way lighter. What was your time? What is your best Murph time you've ever recorded? I haven't done it in a couple of years, but it was like 49. All right. Well, I can tell you that I'm a bigger guy. So I've done a modified Murph myself. And you, so you beat me. So you, yeah, I mean, it's a brutal workout. <laughs> if anyone's never done it, I do highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. It, 
it does give you a sense of accomplishment at the end of it. Evan, you would attest to that. Like when you're done with it, you feel like you just took on like, I don't know, a massive challenge. Yeah. You know, as you know, the CrossFit, there are these hero workouts and that's the hero of the hero workout is Murph, but, and they do it on Memorial day every year. So when you're not doing CrossFit, what do you like to do for fun? You know, I'm a big skier. I've got a long history of skiing and climbing around the world. And so, you know, when I can get my kids, I have a 15 to 16 year old. And so when I can get them, they have to, they have to climb two peaks a year, one on Father's Day and one on my birthday, wow. which is in July. And so that's the only time they'll go with me because they think it's kind of because they think it's pointless. They're like, Dad, there's no restaurant up there. There's nothing when you get there. Like, why are we doing this? There's no ball. There's no game. And so we get them out climbing. It's, it's one indulgence that, that we have. But so so mostly that. And then when you have teenage kids, it's like, you know, I'm a chauffeur. <laughs> when you're climbing, are you just walking up trails? Are you actually using ropes and gear? Are you doing free solo? Historically, um, you know, it's probably not done a lot of serious climbing in the last 15 years since I've had kids. But, you know, um, I've been on multiple Himalayan expeditions, South American expeditions, a lot of ice rock. I lived in Yosemite for a month and a half, Joshua Tree for a month. You know, like that was really my life before I had any professional career. You know, I worked for Outward Bound as an instructor. I mean, just just different stuff. That was my life. Would you describe yourself as a thrill seeker? You know, ironically, no. Like, if you put me in a racing car, I'd be afraid to, you know, hit the curves. <laughs> and you can appreciate this. As, a, as you know, I like measured suffering. I, <laughs> I like things that are hard, and I feel like you have to suffer a little bit every day to sort of clean your pores out, if you will. And so I still, I suffer a little bit every day. I think that's why you returned to the tech game. You know what yeah. I mean? You, you were CEO at iPass. You took a breather. Yeah, you get it. I mean, you know, as much as it's great to work with these amazing people, it is, you know, when you're a CEO, you're carrying the ball every day. So, yeah, there's something. I wouldn't call it pure suffering in the same way, but still, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Well, Evan, it was awesome having you on the show. I want to say thank you for sharing some of the personal stories about yourself, but your vision, and I agree with it, of how the market is moving and how we are constantly looking for an answer. As people, we're always looking for something to do something for us. First step is sensing it. Next step is actually rectifying whatever the problem is. That's the levels of automation that we're looking for. I mean, it all starts with getting that time series data down to, like you said, the (laughs) nanosecond so that you can actually see what's wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Albert. It It was really fun talking to you. Nice job. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Mm -hmm.